This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. I am Ariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Peter Meliaras about the physical therapy management of Achilles tendinopathy. We will discuss the potential causes and mechanisms for mid-portion and insertional Achilles tendinopathy, their characteristics, symptoms, and how to diagnose them. Our conversation also covers key factors that should be assessed during the subjective and objective portions of the evaluation, as well as differential diagnosis that should be considered. Additionally, we explore different exercise approaches that can be recommended and adjunct treatments. If this topic sounds interesting, please stay tuned and keep listening. Dr. Peter Meliaras, our guest, is a physical therapist and researcher from Melbourne, Australia. Currently, he is a professor at Monash University Physiotherapy Department and involved in multiple tendinopathy research projects in Australia and internationally. His research focuses on understanding pain and neuromuscular impairments and clinical trials testing the efficacy of exercise and other interventions in tendinopathy. Peter maintains a strong clinical focus, consulting to people with difficult tendinopathy presentations. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. PT ProTalk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Systems for PT, the do-anything, anytime EMR. Systems for PT develops systems for clinics so you can focus on your patients. Go to systemsforpt.com to schedule a demo today. Looking for the highest quality equipment for your clinic? Turn to Fitter first. Our wobble, rocker, and slant boards are all assembled in North America to meet the demands of a busy professional clinic designed to adjust in seconds and made from the highest quality materials. Get the best Canadian-made rehab and balance products for your clinic. Order online for your clinic or for your clients. Ground shipping anywhere in North America. Visit fitter1.com. That's F-I-T-T-E-R, the numeral1.com. Hi, Peter. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm very good, Mariana. Thank you very much for having me on. Awesome. So let's start talking about your career for the ones that don't know you. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, sure. So I uh, am a physiotherapist. I um, I am uh, practicing as a physiotherapist for 25 years and I work in um, Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, and in the last 20 years, I've been doing research in tendinopathy, uh, mainly around Achilles in the lower limb, but also recently around shoulder. I work at Monash University as a full-time professor, and I also work in a clinic uh, one day a week. Awesome. So we're going to talk about Achilles tendinopathy, obviously. <laughs> so let's start talking about potential causes and mechanisms for the mid-portion and for the insertional Achilles tendinopathy. Sure. So uh, mid-portion and Achilles, there's a lot of overlap. There's probably more overlap than not and um, uh, what we find is that um, probably the key risk factor is activity and loading and what people do uh, so progressing activities too fast um, but then there's also a whole bunch of other uh, personal or individual risk factors 
and they're things like uh, that person's health. So um, how if they have any metabolic issues like cholesterol or um, diabetes, that will also influence the tendon health, but also things like um, hormonal status in females. Females that are perimenopausal can have issues um, as well as um, uh, as well as um, amenorrhea when they have an irregular or lack of menstrual cycle. Um, that can be a risk factor. And uh, then there are other um, other risk factors like age that we can't really change very much. Um, so when we're looking at the individual, we need to be considering the whole range of different risk factors that are possible, um, both from a load point of view but also a non-load point of view. One of the interesting things is that um, we think of tendinopathy very much as a load-related problem and as a biomechanical problem. Uh, but biomechanical risk factors are probably contributing, but they're a small contributor. So they're not very strong contributors. Um, I see in my practice two groups, two broad groups of patients, um, and they are patients that have very load-related problems and others that have problems that are related to other health conditions, like being overweight, high BMI, cholesterol, hormones, um, systemic arthropathies, inflammatory problems, um, and diabetes. So they're, they're a distinct group of patients. And then you've got the other ones, often the younger, more active ones, but also older athletes um, that have more load-related problems. So that's, that's very interesting what you mentioned about metabolic issues. So how would be that mechanism? Um, how would that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, with a metabolic-induced tendinopathy, it's, um, it is thought that the, um, the metabolic factors, so it could be uh, diabetes or cholesterol, has a direct effect on the metabolism of the tendon. So it directly influences what's happening in the tendon, um, and the tendon then is not able to um, keep up the homeostasis as usual and keep up the usual mechanisms of keeping itself healthy. Uh, and at some point, there's development of tissue pathology. Um, so so that's, that's probably how it happens. The other thing to mention, which I think is very important, is that... Um, the risk factors for pain are probably different to the risk factors for pathology. So what we know with tendinopathy is that pathology um, builds up for maybe sometimes many years before the person even gets any pain at all. So the, uh, the onset of pathology and tissue changes happen um, far, far before, sometimes for maybe five or ten years before uh, the person actually has pain. So when we're talking about change in loading and metabolic factors and all these things, we're probably talking more about tissue pathology. And they might be risk factors for pain onset as well, but the risk factors for pain onset are also much more broad because we know that pain is biopsychosocial. So, um, you know, other factors within that biopsychosocial understanding of pain could also influence the onset of pain as well. 
very interesting. I never thought about that, those two different points of views, pain and pathology. Um, so the pathology, the, the risk factors can obviously cause pain, but you have other risk factors on top of the ones that cause pathology that can cause pain. Any other one other than biopsychosocial that you mentioned? Well, um, I think, so biopsychosocial, um, if, we, if we, the biopsychosocial model is just one of the current models for pain. So um, that would, that sort of puts forward the view that pain is, um, uh, the pain experience is influenced by many factors, uh, both the onset, both the onset, but also the maintenance of pain can be influenced by factors like your social environment. So it could be life trauma, it could be work stress, it could be um, uh, other life events that have happened um, that set you up for uh, changes, biochemical changes and other changes that make it more likely that pain will uh, be uh, something that is, um, you know, in the experience of that person. Uh, the other, uh, the other, the other sort of construct within the biopsychosocial model is the psychological factors. So this is where the you know a person's beliefs and um, uh, if they fear movement or you know anxiety, depression, and other factors like that uh, can also be part of the equation. Um, and then you've got all the biological factors. Now we talked about a lot of those already with the um, risk factors for tendon, and that would be metabolic factors, BMI, uh, load, and all the other factors that typically we think about when we think about tendon. So I guess what we think about as tendon risk factors are more so the biological factors within that biopsychosocial model. Okay, great. And so let's talk about the symptoms for mid portion and insertional tendinopathy. So one thing I forgot uh, to mention was that the other risk factor for insertional uh, tendinopathy is um, uh, is compression. So we know that compression of the tendon against the bone when you go into dorsiflexion, that's also considered to be a risk factor for insertional, but not for mid-portion. And that's probably the key difference in terms of risk for those two. Um, we, we, we have a lot of people putting forward uh, opinions about uh, the differences between those two and whether we have, you know, sometimes people say mid-portion is more young and active and the insertional is more the metabolic and the older and the higher BMI people. But uh, I don't think we have any clear evidence to support that. And certainly my experience is that you can have uh, both the very active people um, and the less active people suffering from both insertional and mid-portion. So I don't see any patterns directly. Um, so to get on to your second question um, about the symptoms, uh, it is, so if you're a patient or you are a uh, therapist and you want to pick up a tendon problem, you're really looking for localized pain at either the insertion or at the mid portion 
and it tends to be quite localized. Um, it tends to be activity related. So it is often painful when you're stressing the tendon a lot and higher load activities produce more pain. So things like doing a calf raise might be painful, but doing a hop could be more painful. Um, so they're the types of things that we look for. Some people get stiffness in the morning and that's where you start to walk when you're, after you've got out of bed and it's very sore for the first few steps. So that can also be a feature as well. Okay, and how about the gradual nature of the condition? Do you feel like it is the pain is gradual or that's not true? Yeah, that's a really good question. That is a really good question because there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, so um, I personally think that it's not always gradual. So if you ask a patient, um, was it gradual onset, sometimes they'll say, no, I suddenly felt it when I was running. But that doesn't mean that there's been an incident or a trauma. It was just suddenly felt when they were running. And that's quite that's quite possible that it was suddenly felt, but it wasn't um, this gradual, gradual sort of, you know, getting worse and worse, you know, slowly. So that that is, um, that is um, I think, possible for them to report that, yes, it was sudden. Um, but what we know is that it often doesn't involve trauma. So there shouldn't be any trauma. Where if, if they say, oh, I had something like, you know, a trolley hit me in the back of the leg or um, there was a, you know, there was a trauma where I, uh, you know, um, did something uh, like fell and landed on the foot, that's often not a good history for a tendon problem. It's usually when they're doing uh, running or walking activities for the Achilles that it will come on, but it could be gradual or it could be sudden. The other thing that we need to think about with that is that um, the patients often are not very good at providing a thorough history and an accurate history, um, and it's just because they can't remember. So often patients can't really recall. So if you ask them questions like that, some will be quite um, you know, certain and be able to recall. Others will be less able to recall what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what activities that can cause pain? Um, so generally in terms of activities, it tends to be, we define something in tendons called stretch, shorten, cycle. So stretch, shorten, cycle is usually things like walking, running or jumping. So it's, it's those activities that are most painful someone who's got a tendon problem when they do walking, running or jumping. And it's usually during the activity, if they do too much or if they do high intensity like running up a hill or walking up a hill or it's after the activity and it could be that evening or the day after that it's sore as well. So those types of activities, they tend to load the tendon very heavily. They're high load activities for the tendon so more likely to produce pain. Okay. And so how do you diagnose an Achilles tendinopathy? Okay. So um, diagnosis is primarily based on the clinical history. 
So um, it is based on things like where the pain is, um, whether the pain is activity related, um, uh, uh, how things like morning stiffness, how the pain behaves. Often we find with Achilles tendinopathy the pain improves as people are active um, and then it comes back again um, it comes back again later on, but it improves with activity. Um, so it's really the clinical, the clinical um, history that uh, gives you most of the diagnosis. There is also, um, it is also helpful to uh, look at um, sometimes palpation. So palpation, often people will have tenderness on palpation. Um, and if, if uh, the tenderness on palpation is completely absent, then we know that that is not a good history for, a, for an Achilles tendinopathy. So, so primarily it's based on the, on the um, physical and the clinical symptoms. Okay. Any other objective um, exam that you do to diagnose other than like palpation? Yeah, look, there, there, there is the other, that's a good question. The other key one, which I um, forgot to mention there, was uh, pain with loading tests. So pain with loading tests, so that's a really important one. So pain with tests like um, uh, hopping tests, calf raise tests, and you have to explore those and do a series of them. So you do um, uh, gradually increasing load. You might go from a double leg calf raise to single leg and then to single leg over a step and then to single leg with a knee bend and gradually increasing the load. Uh, and then with hopping, the same thing, you might do double, two legs, then one leg, uh, then hopping forwards and sideways, different types of hopping. Um, so those, those are really good tests because they will stress the tendon and often you'll get then reproduction of pain. So, uh, so in summary then for diagnosis, you're looking at where the pain is, you're looking at um, does the pain is the pain activity related? So does it tend to come on with activity or after? Um, is the pain um, is the is it tender to palpate? And uh, then also uh, is there load test pain? So they're the ones that we look for. We we also recently did a consensus activity with a number of experts around the world, where we asked them. Uh, which um, which signs, which diagnostic history questions do you ask, and what physical exams do you do? And they were the ones that came out as as the most um, the most consensus. Those four things that I've mentioned. So um, we don't have any other special tests. There are no other sort of um, tests that you can do. Uh, to uh, determine whether it's an Achilles problem, but you do also need to exclude other diagnoses. So very important to exclude things like a rupture uh, and exclude things like posterior impingement for an insertional Achilles. And when you were talking about the, the hopping and the calf raise, the, the load tolerance, do you have a protocol that you use? Is that something that can help guide us, guide us to be able to assess that better and, and know what is the pain intensity, 
uh, what low they can tolerate, how long does the pain have to go down? Do you have like anything like that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. So with, I wrote a paper in the Journal of Physiotherapy um, last year, which is called Achilles Tendinopathy Management. And um, the Journal of Physiotherapy is a really good uh, open access journal. So it's completely free to access for uh, anyone around the world. And it always has very clinical uh, pieces in it. So every every edition, and there are four editions, they have a, they have a clinical uh, topical review, they call it, which is all about the management of a condition. So I wrote one Achilles tendinopathy at the end of last year. And in that, we define the concept of load tolerance as having three stages. So load tolerance is where you're looking at asking the, asking the person, how much pain do you get with activities that usually load the tendon, like walking, running, jumping? Um, so if you do a certain amount of those activities, how much pain do you get? Then how long does the pain take to settle down after those activities? That's the second aspect of load tolerance. And then the final one is how much pain do they get with a load test that we do in the clinic with them when they're in front of us. So the first two aspects rely on uh, the history that the patient uh, gives you. And then the third one is the one that you test. You test how much pain they have. So if any of those aspects are giving you the indication that their pain is more than acceptable and you can and we usually define that as sort of a three or four out of ten or severe pain uh, then uh, then we have then we start to think about what can we do to try and reduce that person's symptoms so that's where we think this person is not tolerating the, the amount of load they're they're doing at the moment we need to do something to reduce so it could be any of those aspects or all of them uh, that then lead you to try and uh, go through the process of load management. And load management is when we, um, I know you've got a question about that, so am I, I, we, can, we can talk about it now if you want. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so load management is when we try and reduce the level of provocative activities in the short term to try and improve that person's pain. So it might be that we, we, we say, okay, you're running three times a week. Uh, we want you to try and run once a week, and we're going to see what the response is over one or two weeks. Or it might be that that person is walking 10,000 steps per day, uh, and they're, they're reporting, a, say, calf raise pain of 9 out of 10 or 7 out of 10, and we say, okay, we, we want to try and reduce your pain with the load tests or how much pain you're having with walking. We're going to try and reduce your walking in the short term and you, we're going to try and get you to stick to, say, 5,000 steps per day for the next one or two or three weeks. And it's always a trial and error where you're trying to then reassess in a week or two and you give the patient the load test to reassess themselves. And when you see them, you can reassess the load test as well. And then um, over the number of weeks, you can start to see an improvement in symptoms. But you might also be doing other therapies like you might do manual therapy or dry needling or, um, you know, heel wedges or something else, advice about shoes, shockwave therapy. Uh, I'm not saying that all those therapies are um, evidence-based or that I would definitely support them, but um, most of them are harmless uh, and they may help some people. And I talk about that a bit in the topical review, uh, that is which 
types of adjunct therapies have some evidence to support them as well. Yes. And so what pain level is acceptable? Do you have something that you, you go by when they're exercising or after the exercise, they have to be in a certain pain level? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Because uh, also there's a lot of debate about that. Um, so you're asking some tricky questions there because no one really has an agreement on what acceptable pain is. So some people say, uh, there are people in the literature that say no pain is what we should go for. There are people that, but most people accept that a little bit of pain or some pain is, a, is okay. I, I think the important thing is that the pain during rehab is improving over time. So if the pain is just uh, not in, is getting worse or, or taking weeks and weeks and weeks to improve with certain activities, then you've got to try something different. But I think I, I generally go towards um, defining it as some level of symptom that is going to be acceptable for the patient. Um, so you can put it back to the patient and say, do you think this level of symptom is acceptable for you? Uh, another way of doing it that I use in uh, clinic is to say, I'm going to ask you whether the pain is mild, moderate, or severe. Uh, and if it's more than moderate, we're going to try and modify what we're doing. And that is an easy, easy way for the patient to understand what you're talking about. Because often with the 0 to 10 numerical rating scales, some patients find that difficult to understand, I find. So mild, moderate, and severe, anything above uh, moderate is something that we want to uh, then try and manage. Yes. So my final question is, I, I saw that on your paper, you compared the evidence on some approaches. Um, so would you briefly talk about the Alfredson, Modify Alfredson, Silvernail, having slow resistance? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when, we, um, when we look at the evidence for exercise in the literature, what we see with Achilles and Nopti is that there are a lot of different ways of doing exercise and it is usually uh, things like um, you know, progressive exercise or eccentric-based exercise like the Alfredson where they, um, where, they where they just focus on eccentric or the Silbernagel program where it's a progressive going from uh, you know, concentric, eccentric, then going to uh, then going to eccentric, and she also adds plyometric and speed um, with the Silvermackle program. There's also the heavy slow resistance, which is really just getting them into the gym and loading heavy, um, you know, and that one's more progressive in terms of load intensity. Um, but what we find when we look at the evidence for outcomes in these programs is that there's not really much difference between them. So... Um, there's 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 probably a little bit of evidence to say that maybe some of the other programs are better than the Alfredson program if you look at those those ones. Uh, but um, overall, when you're looking at the outcome of pain, there doesn't seem to be much difference in all those programs. So um, my advice to clinicians is if you're dealing with someone who has got a problem where you're just trying to um, get them to tolerate loads uh, better, it probably doesn't matter very much which exercise program 
out of all those programs that you choose as long as you're progressively bringing in a load that is more and more that is challenging their system uh, to cope with external challenges. Um, where it does get a little bit more um, uh, a requirement to look at the loading type you're doing is when someone has uh, an impairment in terms of their strength. So, for example, when you find that they've got weakness in their calf, um, then you need to do an exercise program that is able to recover uh, whatever that calf impairment is. And that's where the argument for the heavy slow resistance program is probably strongest because um, that's probably the program that is most likely to bring about improvements in strength. Because um, what we see from a lot of studies is that when you do the Olfson program and even some of the other programs, people don't necessarily get improvements in strength. So even though they're doing all this exercise, the calf strength doesn't go up. Uh, so so, so my, my advice is look at the patient you have. If they have a strength impairment, you probably do want to do something that is able to address that strength impairment, and it could be the heavy slow resistance. Otherwise, it may be patient-centered where you can do a, a number of different exercise approaches as long as you're progressing load. Uh, and the patient has a good understanding of their problem um, and good education, then they're probably going to have a good outcome uh, regardless of the type of exercise that you do. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about eccentric, and eccentric, I think, became very popular. So these other approaches, they don't do just eccentric, right? They, they have isometrics, concentric, eccentric. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. And, and the thing is, there's no uh, best way of doing it. We know that now. There's no eccentrics is not special. Isometric is not special. Uh, concentric is not special. It's just trying to find out what you're trying to achieve, what's best for the patient at this time. Often isometric is less provocative early on, so we start with that. But then you've got to progress to concentric, eccentric, and then. If you want to really load them maximally, you might even progress to something like an eccentric later on down the track. So there's probably a rationale for doing all these different types of exercises. But um, we know that for the pain outcome, none of none of those types of exercises offer anything different or anything special. Um, it really is when you're starting to think about more the functional uh, physical outcomes where you can start to then... Um, think about different um, exercise approaches. Awesome. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to find you or um, find your paper, you already talk about that, but if they want to reach out to you, is that a way they can find you? Absolutely. So if you go on Twitter, um, my uh, Twitter handle is Dr. Pete Maliaris. But also, if you look at www.tendinopathyrehab.com, uh, I've got a blog there with tendinopathy uh, sort of education, but also there's an online course that I do. Um, there's also an email, so I'm happy for people, if they've got questions, specific questions, to email me via that, via that website. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. It was great. Um, to learn from you today so I appreciate it 
Fantastic. Thank you very much, uh, Mariana, for having me on. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also, on the show notes, you can find the guest's contact information and favorite resources, links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel, where you can watch the whole episode, and our website, where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time...